What's up, guys? It's me, Heather, back with another episode of my novel, Strike Boat, which I am podcasting as an audiobook for free because I want to make it available to a wide audience during these incredible times that we are living in in Canada, where the question of freedom is very much at the forefront of everyone's mind. Um, I'm going to start in a moment on uh, the second half of Chapter 15, Cochrane. But I just want to make a general comment, and we do get into, um, I guess, press and deplatforming and related in the novel Strike Bow, which is going to be coming up in a subsequent chapter. But what we're seeing in Canada right now is truly remarkable. I have been watching some of the news reports and actually our Prime Minister's speech yesterday on the 21st, or sorry, 31st of January. Um, denouncing the Freedom Convoy as racist. And uh, I just want to make it very clear that what I am seeing um, on the ground, I haven't been very much involved. I did roll with the convoy for a short stretch and stood on an overpass. And every um, person that was there was just so joyful and peaceful and proud and happy and loving. And to hear that be portrayed as hateful, divisive, and uh, racist by our prime minister and by our state-run media, it's just been incredible to witness. Um, What's being portrayed on our media right now does not match what has been my experience of this movement on the ground. And it's just an incredible time to be alive. Um, Anyway, just wanted to say that. Today is February 1st of 2022. February 1st. It's 02, 2022. And I'm doing episode 22. So that's a lot of twos today. And it's part two of chapter 15. So with that, I will get started on today's reading. Chapter 15, Cochrane, part two. The scene was devastating, but there was also a wonderful kind of heroism to be witnessed. People in small vessels were hauling bodies out of the water. Common people, bystanders, just average humans doing what they could to save each other. Ten or twenty fishing boats bobbed in the froth, and Morty took care to get footage of this as the people on board pulled the living and the dead alike onto their decks. That the gap between the Bruce and the mainland had widened alarmingly was very noticeable from above. Morty streamed the images live from his camera to the CBC newsroom, and Jamie got a text from her boss asking for more voiceover, this time with her face on screen for the viewers. She pulled herself together and relayed the request to Morty. While he switched cameras, Setting down his hand controls, which operated the camera mounted on the bottom of the machine, and picked up the small handheld for capturing the close-up shot inside the helicopter, she pulled a compact mirror from her purse. She stared at her reflection, combed her bangs straight with her fingers. She thought about applying a little lipstick and maybe some foundation to help with the puffy redness around her eyes from when she had been crying, but then her hand sagged down into her lap and she put the lipstick back, unopened. Somehow the thought of applying makeup in the wake of all this loss in life that she was watching turned her cold. She would speak to the masses as she was, she decided. 
She was human. And watching this loss of life was having an impact on her. And she wanted to honor the victims in some small way by letting the people watching at home know about how this was affecting her. She cleared her throat and prepared to begin. And when she spoke, it was with a sheen of shock that hollowed out her features. We're coming to you now live from Wyerton, where rescue attempts are underway as boaters try to get to the hundreds or thousands of people who are currently stranded in the bay. She had to stop for a moment as tears swam into her eyes again, and people watching from home saw her lower lip tremble. I, I apologize. I'm trying to maintain my composure, but I've never seen a scene like this before. There is so much carnage. There are bodies floating everywhere. But there is also... She had to stop here to swallow back the lump that was lodging in her throat and turn her face away, wincing at the stab that pierced her heart. Bravery. I'm looking at a group of citizens, just regular people, cottagers and fishermen, and they are making an almost inhumanly heroic effort to save the people that they can. This area is by no means safe. We are watching the rock fall directly in front of us, still dislodging massive boulders into the lake. There's flotsam on the surface, logs, trees, hard objects battering those who are in the water. The risks are obvious, but that has not stopped these people from wading in and doing what they can to help. I wish we could help, but we don't have any rescue equipment. The police and first responders are on their way. We can see the first of the flashing lights approaching, but right now regular people, civilians for the most part, are doing everything they can to help. They've been in the water for several minutes already, undertaking a massive effort to save who they can. She let her voice drone on as, Morty cap, as Morty's camera focused on her face. As she spoke into the camera, Jamie was unaware of the slow and steady stream of tears that rolled down her cheeks as she struggled to keep her voice neutral. When she had said all that she could think of to say, she threw it back to the studio and lowered her head back to the headrest, closing her eyes. People watching from home and on their smartphones, stuck in traffic, viewers by the millions, saw her humanity in that moment. They saw how the scene was affecting her, the loss of life, and they grieved along with her but then her sadness turned to anger. Those lying fucks, she thought. Those lying, thieving, cheating fucks. Bitterly, she reflected on the differences between the average person who jumped into the fray and generally tried to do the right thing as she was now witnessing versus the kind of people who would cause a thing like this and then casually saunter away in their fancy custom helicopter. How had this been allowed to happen? That was what she wanted to know. Weren't there regulations in place to prevent things like this? There were for the little guy. For the commoner, there were permits and permissions that one had to get, like the ones her parents had needed in order to build a small garage beside their house last year. It seemed like the average citizen was always facing hurdles that they had to jump through. But the rich did what they wanted. They hadn't gotten permits to frack the Great Lakes region. There were protocols in place to keep disasters such as this one from occurring, but they hadn't bothered following them. 
focused on the money, they just set up shop and gone to work. And when the rubber hit the road, they had turned and fled. She thought about the flash of that gold insignia again when the flag Blackhawk had turned its tail and run. Her pilot interrupted her musings. We're running out of fuel. I'll take you back to the station. Then I'm going home. His voice was hollow. After what we've seen, it's time to get my wife and kids and head outside the evac zone. Not much doubt about it now. Of course, Jamie said hollowly, for how could she argue with that? They dipped around and headed south to London. Jamie sat back in her seat to watch the fields pass by below through eyes that stung with bitter tears. The westbound lanes of the 402 had begun to move again as drivers who had been gridlocked made their slow and careful way around the sinkhole towards the open westbound lanes and the safety that lay beyond the Canadian border. Most of the drivers honked and waved at the little cluster of people that had moved the barriers to make this possible. Some of these drivers would later realize how incredibly lucky they actually were, how fortunate it had been that the Fallon workers had been able to reconfigure the overpass, that the only reason they were able to keep their freedom in the end had been the fact that they owned a vehicle and a way that had been opened up for them that could get them outside the evac zone before the news tightened down on those who were left. When the traffic started flowing again, many of the Fallon workers had moved off, walking in twos and threes back to the employee lot to retrieve their vehicles, await their slow turn in the creeping traffic that would eventually clear the obstruction. While the workers went about their business of getting themselves out of the area, Vic and Deb stood amongst the few who still remained. They stood in a group on the top of the overpass, marveling, Deb thought. That was the word that had come to her as she looked down over the quagmire where the road had been and watched the trickle of vehicles slowly move past it. There had been some tearful partings with fellow workers, a lot of hugs and hopes for the best, and a lot of sad lamenting that the end of their acquaintance had come like this. No matter how corrupt the owners of the means of production that had paid their salaries had been, the workers had been a united force. They had demonstrated their mettle for sure, and Deb was glad that their final act of teamwork together had been to help set people free. As the other workers trickled away one by one to gather up their families and head for safety, Bert, the transport truck driver, cleared his throat. Well, ma'am, I guess I'll be leaving now too, he said. Thanks to you guys, us rigs up here, stranded on this bridge, have got enough room to get out. He peered over the side of the bridge doubtfully, eyeing the concrete pillars that upheld the mass of the bridge. Besides, I don't think this old bridge here is going to hold for too much longer. I got a bad feeling, and I got to get Abdul here back to the wife. Deb gave him a quick hug. Thank you for everything. You did great back there. What will you do next? You going home to get your family too? Bert shook his head. No, ma'am, not me. I don't have any family, at least not around these parts. I guess I'll mosey on down the road a ways, see if anything else I can do to help along the way. Deb cocked her head. What about the truck? You going to take it back to your employer? Bert smiled a little half smile at her. None of that matters anymore. This here's a turning point, is what I think. And things like ownership and who owes money for what, that's all erased. In the aftermath, when all of this goes underwater, 
the one good thing we'll find is that they set us free from all of that, at least for a while. Deb chewed this over. They won't, she thought. They're going to hold the people's debts over them. They're going to somehow use that to enslave us, or at least they'll try. Her eyes clouded over at this thought, but finally she nodded, smiling. There was a corona of light from the westering sun behind his head as she looked at him. She shielded her eyes with her forearm. Maybe you're right. Well, thanks again. And Bert, maybe someday, somewhere, we'll meet again. But if not, good luck. Wherever you go, whatever you do, please be careful. Same to you, ma'am. Remember, freedom is out there. All you got to do is walk toward it. Peace. Bert held two fingers up at them, then tapped them over his heart. He climbed up in his cab and started up the engine. Abdul gave a quick wave also from the passenger window, and a moment later they rolled slowly out to join the queue of slow-moving vehicles leading to the westbound lanes. Deb stared after them reflectively, watching until slowly but surely the bridge became emptied of vehicles. The future was a question mark. Deb didn't know what was going to happen, but she knew one thing. Even though the air was heavy, even though an ominous silence, sorry, even though an ominous vibration seemed to hang over the world right then, there were parts of her that still felt like singing. She looked at Vic, who looked as good as she felt. Hey, she said, leaning her head on his shoulder for a second and slipping her hand into the back pocket of his jeans. We did something amazing back there. We really did. We lifted up one corner of the veil and shone a light onto shadowy, inappropriate things that were being done by the elites. And what we saw behind the curtain was that they hadn't been so powerful after all. Fallon is just a man, pathetic really, just a fragile, spoiled man who turned and ran when the light of the world shone down on him and exposed the things that he had been willing to do, to go along with, to make a profit. If Fallon can be taken down, so can the rest of them. Sure, we've lost our jobs, and by tomorrow morning, our homes could be at the bottom of a lake. But we did it. We did a thing that hardly anyone in history has been able to do. We exposed at least part of what the powerful are up to behind the scenes. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, Vic said. The Wizard of Oz had it right. She laughed and squeezed his hand. He squeezed hers back. And then they were both laughing. The feeling was crazy and exhilarating, and they were part of it. It was an intoxicating feeling, and suddenly she remembered that she owed this man a smooch. She pulled him close and laid one on him, deep and intense, until he broke off laughing. What was that for? She shrugged. Everything, she said. In that case, I got one for you, too. They were on top of the 402 overpass, with the sun shining behind them. One muscular, large, white man, and one delicately gorgeous, slim black woman. And this time when he kissed her, it was slow and tender. And when at last they parted, the laughter was gone from his face. You were incredible back there, he said. She could smell the scent of him, something clean and spicy, and a tingle shivered through her. You were pretty great yourself. He laughed, then turned his head as a shadow fell on them. A cloud had gone in front of the sun. A sudden breeze picked up a length of her hair and tossed it across her face. 
She reached up to tuck it back behind her ear, and in that moment, a chill went down her arms as she became aware that something had gone wrong. It was a subtle change, but the vibe amongst the dwindling crowd of workers had shifted. Deb rubbed at the goose flesh that had broken out over her arms. A hollow, haunting grinding like the sound of whale song rose up from the ground below them. She looked around and saw that most of the people were looking at something over the railing, clustered in little groups. Now what, she muttered, but she was drawn to it, like a rock in her gut. She grabbed Vic's hand and brought him with her, and the two of them wiggled their way in beside Ricky Jarvis at the railing. Together they peered over the side. There was a canyon below, and it was growing. The earth gave a terrible groan and the sinkhole widened as they watched. No longer a circular concavity, a mud-filled trench now lay between the overpasses' upright supports. Sections of earth on either side slid down and melted into the muddy slurry at the bottom. The crevasse was growing right before their eyes. Deb shuddered. The sound was like a giant monster swallowing. She watched until the chunk of earth below one of the concrete pilings that held up the overpass became decayed and slept away. She stared at the hole where it had been. It was become, beginning to become real to her that they were in danger, and standing over the crevasse brought that home to her, made it feel true in a way which it hadn't felt true until that moment. This was indisputable, the proof of her own eyes that what the slideshow said was true. Southwestern Ontario had become unlivable. The foundation of land they stood on was riddled and pocked like Swiss cheese, and it was melting. They may have done something, some small thing, to shine a light on the corruption, but the rot that Flag had wrought was all around them, and Deb knew that it would be years or decades before this earth recovered. As though to back this thought up with proof, the structural stability of the bridge that they stood upon had become undercut, unsafe, and if that wasn't a metaphor for what was happening to this whole part of the world, Deb didn't know what was. We need to get off of the overpass. Come on, everybody now. This thing is going to collapse. It was Ricky Jarvis. He appeared beside them, shooing them onwards toward the edge of the bridge. Vic took Deb's hand, and they started for the grass shoulder of Hickory Road. Together, they crossed the distance, jogging, along with a small group of people. Most of the others had gone to the other side, back towards the Fallon plant and their vehicles, but Vic and Deb and Ricky went with a few others towards the side of the bridge that led to the municipal building. Once they had reached solid ground, Deb saw people snapping photos of the crumbling overpass and taking videos with their smartphones. She turned to watch, helplessly, the events that they were filming. A crack split the underside of the overpass. This the support pillars on that side that went into the sinkhole were no longer vertical. They had tilted, and the pressure on the span itself had shifted. There was a, a giant splash as one concrete segment piece cracked off and fell into the water, and then another, and then a whole bunch more, and then the thing collapsed. A dust cloud arose, drifting out in front of the westering sun, hazing it out, the air lit up in front of it, opaque. Vic turned to Deb. 
you know, if we hadn't got those vehicles moving, that Bert fellow and his friend Abdul and all those other drivers would have been on that thing when it went down. She realized he was right. It's still a strange feeling to watch it go down like that. It's like a piece of our society's stability, our infrastructure. I never would have thought it could just collapse like that, like a house of cards. Unreal. There goes the global supply chain, brought to its knees right in front of our eyes. Even if the landmass doesn't go down, we're so screwed. We can't depend on goods moving through here anymore. This is going to shut down the economy. Nobody disagreed with her. Together they watched, shell-shocked, this group of people who had seen so much today, who'd lost their jobs and livelihoods, and who stood to lose their homes. They watched in silent mourning as the fabric of the reality of their lives as Canadian citizens began to crumble and eventually failed completely. A marvel of engineering reduced to a pile of debris that was slowly sinking into a mud hole to be reclaimed by the earth. When it was done, an eerie silence descended, but then one lone voice ended it. Oh, please, God, no. A man's voice spoke hollowly from beside them. He was staring into his smartphone. Oh, God, no, all those lives. Please, God, help us. Slowly, Vic and Debbie went to stand by him. Ricky Jarvis joined them the three of them watching over their co-worker's shoulder as he stared at the footage Morty had filmed from the helicopter. Footage of a gash, just like this one, except bigger. One that had washed cars and trees and homes and human bodies into the water. A tired-sounding female voice narrated, and then the camera focused in on Jamie's face. Holy shit, that's Jamie, Ricky blurted. He snatched the smartphone closer, staring at it intently. She's crying, he said, and Deb heard the note of anguish in his voice. Suddenly, Victor snatched the smartphone from his hand, staring at the footage that Morty had captured with the bottom-mounted camera. Oh my god, look at all those bodies. Look at all those injured people. He looked at Deb in mute anguish, and she laid a hand along his arm. She peered at the screen. It showed a boat one that did indeed have dead bodies on it, she saw, and they were little kids. She closed her eyes. It's the fracking, Vic said dully. It's the fracking that runs the vehicles we built, that paid our paychecks, and there's dead people there because of it. Some of them are children. Jesus. Ricky took the smartphone from his hand and held it close. On screen, the body of a tiny child, no more than four or five, floated past the vessel. The woman who'd been driving struggled desperately to haul the lifeless form on board, then collapsed backwards, hugging her arms across her chest and crying. The kid was dead. Ricky shook his head. No, he said. That kid shouldn't have had to die. The ones who are down there helping, those people shouldn't have to see what they are seeing. Jamie shouldn't have to see it either. Christ, people shouldn't have to die so that a company can make a profit. He looked sick, as though the fracking drills that caused this damage had been his alone. Those people pay our paychecks. Inadvertently or no, we've been a part of it. Ricky's anger was obvious. I never wanted to work for Fallon Motors. 
I wanted to go to university, become a veterinarian. But when I was 16, my mom and dad's computer business failed. It was just a small town store. Couldn't compete with the big box electronics shops. And my mom and dad went bankrupt. There wasn't any money for tuition. I wanted to help. The Fallon plant was hiring. I thought that maybe if I got a job there for a few years, I could save some money, earn up my tuition that way, help my parents pay the bills. But now it's two years later, and all I am is just a temp. My parents had to sell the house and move into my apartment with me, and somehow there's never enough money to put aside for savings. That story alone is bad enough. But to think that I've been working for the very people who have done this? He pinched the bridge of his nose and squinted his eyes shut. Vic put a hand on his back. Ricky put his hands on his knees and dropped his head down between his shoulders. He took a few deep breaths that way and then stood up. He looked over the ruins of the overpass, slowly sinking into the muddy crevasse through eyes that shone with angry tears. It was more than he could handle all of a sudden. A cry of rage began to build inside of him. No, 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 Ricky yelled, whipping around to face what was left of the crowd. Foreheads rippled in confusion. People had begun to look at him, but Ricky had reached his breaking point. He paced back and forth in front of the crevasse, his breath a ragged rhythm. He looked out over the few assembled workers and saw the fear and uncertainty on their faces. He began to speak. That landslide, there's people dead up there, and we're responsible. Us workers here, we didn't know what we were doing, but the money that paid our checks was dirty money. He broke off speaking, looked a few of them in the eye, and continued. That's why what we did today was so important. When we found out what they were doing, we could have just looked the other way. We could have kept on working, knowing that each vehicle that we produced just lines their pockets even further. Fuck, man, we could have kept on working right until the ground gave way beneath us. Just a bunch of monkeys banging uselessly away on cars, heading off into eternity. But we didn't. We stood our ground. It's money that gives them power, that makes them put themselves above the law. And love of money made them do a thing like this without regard for what it caused. They have no soul. But we do. When we found out, we stopped them. We didn't know in time to stop the damage, but we stopped them making money. We were able to do that, and because we did, we were able to free up the roadblock that they caused so that people could get to safety. Unfortunately, it's a little bit like closing the barn doors after the horses run away, but here, today, we stopped them. Once we knew what they were doing, we walked away. That's something that I want you to remember. If any of you have doubts about what happened down at the plant today, about the wildcat, just remember that we wouldn't be a part of what they did. It was different before. We didn't know. But once we did, we walked away. No paycheck is worth that damage. Money isn't worth that loss of life. That's what makes us who we are and them who they are. Money is all they care about. For us, it's life. Rick stopped pacing and looked at them. Scattered applause broke out and then a spirited cheer. Heads were nodding, fists rose in the air, and as Deb watched these people showing joy in the face of calamity, her heart swelled. It was true. Love of money made them different, the ones that did a thing like this. 
It was their greed that made them dark and dangerous and willing to sacrifice others for their own gain. They were dark, but these people here, standing with her now, were not. And now that she had seen it, she felt her soul expand with renewed hope because the ones she stood beside had honor. Where Fallon and his friends had lost all sight of the line between what's right and wrong, these people hadn't. Like her, they understood. Nothing was more sacred than the beauty of human life and free choice. A smile broke across her face. She tipped her head back, closed her eyes, and felt the sun's full golden warmth bathe her in its amber light. She basked in it, and when she'd had her fill, she spoke to them. Thank you, brothers and sisters. Thank you for all of your hard work today and for restoring my faith in humanity. Now Vic and I are heading back to the municipal building to see if Mayor Walters needs our help. Any of you that wants to come is welcome. She grasped Vic's hand and started walking, and a few of them fell in behind her, Rick among them. All right, I will leave it there for today. Quite the contrast between my press reporter from the CDC and my novel there, Jamie, who wears the truth on her face and her heart on her sleeve and reports from the ground in an honest and direct fashion. And the reporters that we see on the CBC today in real life, present day Canada, the difference is striking. That's all I'll say about it. But we see it. It's visible. And more and more of us are seeing it. In the next episode, we will be talking about a visit from the ancestors. And by that, we can mean the indigenous. So looking forward to reading out that episode. For right now, wherever you are in the world, Stay free. All the best.